0: Hey everybody, welcome to the green room. We're at Disrupt TV. Today we're gonna have some very interesting guests talking about a wide range of issues. And of course, a very, very special uh, guest uh, who's already on the show all the time. So. <laughs> so let's do reverse order intros. Tell us where you're coming in from and what are we talking about today? Henry, you're up.
1: Great, thanks Ray. Um, thanks for having me by the way. And it's a pleasure to meet everyone else. Uh, my name's Henry King. Um, I am an innovation and transformation leader at Salesforce. Uh, but I'm here today to talk about uh, a new book, the book that I co-authored with Vala uh, called Boundless. And so we're very kind of excited to have a conversation.
0: Very, very cool. And of course, Vala needs an introduction, so we're not gonna introduce him. Lisa, congratulations, welcome. Where are you coming in from? What's what's happening?
2: I'm in Manhattan in the Garment District in New York City. My name is Lisa Sun. I'm the CEO of Gravitas, and my new book came out last week, and as I just shared, the good news is we were named a USA Today bestseller yesterday, number 41 out of 150, so you all are the first to hear the news publicly.
0: And we'll do it. Yeah, and we're in the green room. We'll do it live in a little bit as well with everyone else, and of course, Chris, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about today? Hey, guys, Chris Roder
3: with JLL based and here in downtown San Francisco, where the streets are clean and alive, unlike uh, what you might be reading about. But I've been working downtown and
0: office leasing for uh, almost 30 years. Very, very cool. We'll change the image of what's happening by talking about reality. All right. Well, I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Asher, amazing producer, L, And we're going to kick off the show right now.
2: All right. right, three, two one.
4: Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on X uh, at Disrupt TV Show and uh, send us your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. You can see Ray pretty much every day on television television business and technology news at Bloomberg, Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, and CNBC. In my opinion, he's one of the top futures to follow on Twitter X at RWNG0.
0: Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my amazing co-host, Bala Afshar. He's the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence, but that's not important. His new book, written with Henry King, is Boundless, A New Mindset for Unlimited Business Success. That will be Available now everywhere you can grab it and it's on the bestseller list. And of course, executives around the world also follow Bob for his amazing inspirational insightful tweets. And of course, catching him at keynotes, conferences, and events, and also on tech media like Bloomberg and ZDNet, and more importantly, in the media and the broad press, everywhere in large keynotes. But it's not about us, it's about our amazing guests. And of course, we have one to kick off today to really reset the scene of what's happening, especially in one of our big tech hubs in the U.S., but do we have to kick it off, Bala?
4: It's our pleasure to have Chris Roder, Broker Lead and Executive Managing Director at Jones Lang LaSalle, JLL. Chris is a corporate real estate advisor who leads the 45-person brokers team at JLL. Chris primarily represents institu- institutional landlords and tenants throughout the city's 90 million square foot commercial office sector. Since 2007, Chris has consistently been considered and awarded as one of the top brokers in the U.S., Chris has over 25 years of experience with devising strategy leasing plans for San Francisco's largest and most active institutional investors, helping create new submarkets such as mid-market, the Presidio and Soma, and executing some of the largest and most complicated transactions over the last two decades in San Francisco. As someone who spent a week at my company's largest conference in San Francisco, I have to tell our audience it was an amazing, beautiful city experience, and we're here to learn more about it from Chris. Welcome, Chris, to Disrupt TV. Thanks to have me. I,
3: I hear you uh you talk about, about me like that and sure makes me feel old, I'll tell you that.
4: <laughs> you must have started in your teens. Yeah. I, you was, I was pretty I was
3: pretty young, but maybe I'm just older than than people think. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and the um, I'm really excited to have you here. And, you know, there's been, we've tried to look at tech cities and tech hubs and what's going on in different places and the work from home movement and the pandemic lockdowns and a host of other social uh, things all happened in San Francisco at once and, and really, cha- really changed the landscape of what's in San Francisco. Uh, and so the question for everybody right now is, is, hey, what's happening in the city? Give us kind of an overview of what's happening. And, and are you optimistic about the San Francisco office market going forward because because this is where a lot of the innovation is happening, and a lot of you know the conversations that are happening across not just San Francisco but the Silicon Valley region.
3: Yes, yes, and yes. I am very optimistic. Glass is half full. I mean, look, what people have to realize about San Francisco is it's always been the center of innovation, but it's also been a boom and bust town, right? From back in the Gold Rush to you know the 1906 earthquake, then to the 89 earthquake, to the dot com bust, now COVID. We constantly rebuild, and why is that? It's because people want to be here. We've always been, you know, a very, uh, a very progressive city, um, but the beauty is what makes people want to live here. You've got the mountains, you've got Napa Valley, you've got the beauty of, of of the bay and the ocean, and being in San Francisco, and and then on top of that is our universities. You know, we have some of the best universities that are catering. Um, to that to that community in Cal and Stanford and San Jose State SF State UCSF so we have some of the best regional universities so yes there's no doubt we're going to come back I think that um, you know part of Part of the downfall, people talk about the doom loop, um, you know, I'll bring it up first. People talk about the doom loop in San Francisco. I think there was a little bit of a doom loop in COVID here. I, I don't mm-hmm. think that it's going to be resounding a decades-long thing, but I think there was a loop that's already happened for a couple of years, and we've kind of seen it in the rearview mirror, because if you think about it, we were the least occupied city during COVID, which makes sense, right? The office buildings here in uh, the CBD here has the highest density of office space of any city in, in the U.S. So when COVID hit, all of these software companies who preached doing everything in the cloud in the first place were the first ones to leave and not come downtown. And the last ones to come back. The retail closed. The health and safety wasn't here. So the city just became became a little bit of Gotham in, in certain ways. You know, Be- Beirut in the 90s um and it took a while to come back and so i think the city has done a great job first and foremost cleaning up the cbd i think that as you walk it today Vala, like you said you were here last week the city has cleaned up i think that um, uh, a lot of the homelessness is being pushed into certain areas Um, And it's become much safer. And I think at the end of the day, that's what people want is first and foremost, they want a safe city, they want a clean city. Uh, And then I think what's following is the retailers. I mean, I think there's been 20 new retailers that have opened in Union Square this year um, which maybe doesn't show it as much as it, it you know it's hard it's hard to see but if you walk down in Union Square, if you walk down Market Street the activity is back. so then the big question is when are the companies going to come back when are employees going to start forcing or telling or encouraging in one way or the other their employees to come back and I, I think that it's you know that boils down to leadership I think that we'd all be think we'd all be naive to think that there's not going to be some sort of hybrid uh, work work in the future um, does that mean that all of these office buildings are totally obsolete and never going to be full again no i mean you look at churches churches were built for one day a week right so can office buildings be built for three or four days a week yeah probably um, but I will tell you, on the ground, what we're seeing is the startup companies are coming back to the office. Those who haven't made it, who haven't had their exit, who haven't IPO'd, who haven't sold, um, especially with the C-suite that, um, that that hasn't hasn't had their exit yet. Those, those, those companies, those startup companies, a lot of them are AI companies, which we'll talk about. They're coming back into the office. They're here five to six days a week. It's like old time, and they're out looking for new office space. If you are a Fortune One Thousand company, um, you don't have equity to offer. You're paying decent salary. It's more of a job, less of a career. And those people, in my mind, aren't grinding as much. And most of them are still at home. the 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 unique aspect that's going to be interesting to watch is the productivity, because I think all of these big companies are 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 taking. Um, in account for the productivity of their employees and they know deep down and studies have showed it and they've told us how less productive people are working from home and especially those hires that have occurred during COVID. Some, one of the, one of the major companies in downtown San Francisco says that by their estimations, the new hires that have happened during COVID are half as productive. 50% as productive of those that were trained and mentored and learned their jobs pre-covid. So look, it's going to take a while. I'm betting on San Francisco. It's a beautiful city. It's got fantastic resources. People love being here. I think the the, the administration's doing a pretty good job as of recent to um, to make it a more desirable place to come. I think tourism is 80% back and they say it's going to be 100% back by 2025. Um, so I'm I'm a buyer. I'm a buyer when it comes to San Francisco.
4: Yeah, no, I, I, uh, you know, my my employer is the, is the largest employer in the city. And um, last week, as I mentioned to you, we had our annual conference. I've been attending this conference since two thousand nine, every year with the exception of one, one year. So, I've been to thirteen um, Dream Forces, and uh, you know, we had over north of forty thousand in person. Uh, and um, by some estimates, my company and the partner ecosystem injected $89 million into San Francisco just last week. Um, And of course, the the, the conference over the last decade has led to hundreds of millions of donations to the public hospitals and hundreds of millions of donations to public schools. And last week, my experience was beautiful. Uh, I I thought the city was as clean as I remember. Uh, And I walked the streets morning and night and I felt safe the whole time. So just just, uh, a, a data point from last week. Um, and you mentioned AI. A recent study that looked at uh, GDP contributions in San Francisco, and tech companies are uh, outpacing all other sec- sectors by three x in San Francisco. So the technology company contributions to the city is far greater than any other sector. And some argue San Francisco is the AI city, number one AI city in the world. So as the so AI, in my opinion, will fuel and accelerate greater adoption and attraction of talent, because this is a technology that's, in my opinion, the electricity for the 21st century. And San Francisco happens to be at the epicenter of it all. So my question to you is, do you sense what building owners are doing to adopt to this new normal? You reference hybrid is most likely new normal, regardless of the size of your business. And, you know, your, your sense in terms of technologies like artificial intelligence where there's excitement and energy and people want to be together to really, as Steve Jobs said, put a dent in the universe. So a couple things to unpack there.
3: First of all, as it relates to your company, Salesforce, I think you, leave, you are the largest employer in San Francisco. It's been awesome to watch a company like Salesforce start in San Francisco with 10 employees and to grow what they are today. It's really been cool, and I, I've been lucky, fortunate enough to be a part of many of those those office projects that that they've been a part of. Um, they lease about you lease about two million feet downtown. The question I have is, if you lease two million feet downtown and people are encouraged to get back to the office and excited, and there's more employees today than you had. Uh, then you had pre-COVID. I think more, way more employees in San Francisco. You're also out subleasing about a million and a half square feet. So what'll be interesting, and I guess it's not a question, what'll be interesting to watch is Salesforce as they decide to return to the office or not, because I think there are some mandates, but no enforcement as far as I understand. It'll be interesting to watch that million and a half feet that you're trying to sublease that is having a little bit of a detrimental effect to downtown. Will they come back? I mean, Salesforce has been a great Public Citizen has been a great company for us in San Francisco, has driven a tremendous amount of growth. I think your leadership has done great things for the city, like you said, in, the, in, in, in so many different aspects of health, homelessness and, and hospitals. But will the company actually force their employees back to just add to that, L, uh, uh, to revitalize downtown? Because that's what we need, is we need, we need people coming back downtown. So I, I hope they do for, for, for my own personal
0: reasons. You know Chris that's a great question and and, and really like what, what are those amenities people are looking for right what yeah. what's changing when people so that's go back a, to the office? So before
3: I yeah before I get to that let me just answer about the AI companies so we are the number one city in the world as it relates to to ai we have more vc funding that's come to San Francisco the last three years and in the last year than any world any any city in the world. We have mo- more job openings for AI companies Um, Cal and Stanford are two of the top three schools graduating the type of engineers that those AR companies want to receive. And it's over one third of the funding from VC companies to AI companies have come to companies since 2021 of companies have come to companies based in San Francisco. And I think it's 11 of the top 20 AI companies in the world are based here in San Francisco. So just to your point. AI is helping us pull out of this and is is just is 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 awesome and is so fun to see and we're meeting with these people and the employees are excited and they want to be here and that's gonna be the next resurgence. So your, in the third part of your question, was and what is it that these tenants want to be able to come yeah, back? Yeah, what's
0: changed, right? Before yeah. it was a different type of space. Before yeah. we are trying to get people in hoteling in a different way. Now there might be safety requirements. Maybe it's a little bit different in terms of the types of gatherings, right? Services aren't there all the time in terms of food, right? Or in terms of other types of amenities in terms of there were some places that even really, really posh amenities. Yeah. So just, just trying to understand what, what's that mix look like today?
3: So I think that there's a couple things. One, it's the fundamentals. First and foremost, no one wants to come downtown if it's not clean and it's not safe, right? And it wasn't for a long time. I've been here every day since, since June of 2020. We took six weeks off and I have, wow. been, I have been downtown wow. every day that I'm in, San Fr- in, 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 in the um, Bay Area. I'm here in San Francisco. It's a Friday and I'm here and my team is here. So first thing people want is health and safety, and I think the city's done a pretty good job achieving that. Second thing is public transportation. We still don't have all of the express buses, the express muni buses from the marina in different parts of the city coming downtown. So that's something we need to fix. Mm -hmm. BART is on track, although usership is way down. Then once you get to the city, what is it that people want? People want activity more so than ever. They don't wanna just work in their office. They wanna go outside. They wanna experience uh, the city. They They wanna see activation. The luck, the good thing is we've had plenty of new restaurants and bars that have opened in the CBD. Holbrook House at One Sansom, um, which Salesforce had an event at two nights. They just opened big event center and in downtown. There's been several new um, uh, restaurants on the waterfront. So people want to be able to leave their office and go outside and experience. We have a long way to go on the retail side and opening new restaurants and bars, but I think we're starting to achieve it. I think I read that there was nine new restaurants and bars opened this year in the downtown CBD, which is fantastic. And then lastly, they want to go into their office space and they want it to feel more like their home, right? They want it to be, they want it to feel less like the office space of old. And they, and, and, and so companies are pivoting and doing the companies and landlords are pivoting and doing the right thing. San Francisco was 4% vacant before COVID, right? We had the lowest vacancy in the U S now we're over 30 percent. we have the highest vacancy so we went from the lowest vacancy to the highest vacancy part of that is landlords didn't need to build a lot of the amenities into their space and into their buildings to entice people that they that they are now so there's so most landlords downtown are talking about okay how how do i create amenities to to um to get people more excited how do i build not just a gym but something like A crunch gym where you walk in and it's like, you know, like a Barry's boot camp where you're the music's thumping, um, you know, uh, there's colors, (laughs) there is activity. It's a fun place to be. How do we create a tenant lounge that's more like a bar that you would go to in the marina? Or conference facilities, you know, for for people for meetings. So, so uh, how do we, you know, cold plunge, saunas? I mean, everything. It's it's how do you replace kind of the activity and then um, that people get at home and then and then make it more activation. So, all of those things are things that are being considered and landlords are doing. And it's it's actually pretty fun. It's like making my job a little more exciting to be able to come <laughs> in and like put these recommendations together to help to help these companies and right. help these landlords
0: are building owners also thinking about creating dedicated transit from different points as well or pulling in to do that so the city
3: has always pushed back oh. on that there's certain you know google and others have always done transit yeah. outside of the san francisco um, they i think there's certain areas that aren't right off of market street where there's shuttles that'll that'll take place but the city's not as big on that i think that the better strategy would be to go in and and so many people take Ubers now and just get their, their Ubers or Lyfts reimbursed. So I think the better strategy is just to, even if they're not going to be full is just open up some of the express buses express, you know, from, from the major parts of the city for people commuting in.
4: I saw more e-bikes and e-scooters last week than ever before in the city. I'm wondering, is it a safe cycling city? Um, and I saw more people on e-scooters. I mean, folks in suits on e-scooters. Yeah. Uh, so, is, is there a transition to, 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 to using bicycles and, and mopeds and so on and so forth to get? I to think that
3: we were, we were lucky in that we were at the forefront pre-COVID in, ha- in having the scooter and the bike program not only the city bikes but the the limes and some of the other scooter yeah. programs some of the third parties we yeah. allowed it and we were a test market cuz some of those companies were actually based here and started here some and so yeah i would bet that we are uh, there's as many scooters and bike Bike share and scooter shares in downtown San Francisco is just about any other city anywhere. Yeah. The other thing is the city's done a really good job. Although I don't agree where they've put their bike lanes, they have put a, during COVID they did build a bunch of bike lanes. Um, and, and Market Street is now closed off to cars, other than public transportation. So the, I think the city is doing some of the right things and making sure that it is a it is a, a downtown that you can that you can um, get back and
0: forth from pretty easily. Uh, I could explain the ticket I got during Salesforce. No, I'm just kidding. Anyways, <laughs> 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 we're with Chris
3: Broder well, as, some, as someone as, as, <laughs> as someone who has teenage kids. You know, I I, I cringe <laughs> when I see some of these people cruising around in their suits without helmets on. But um, yeah. but you know, we're, we're
0: here we with do. Chris Broder, executive managing director, broker lead, JLL. More importantly, telling us of what the state of San Francisco's office market and conditions are. Thank you so Thank much, you for Chris. Being here. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks Sarah. so much.
4: That's great. I love the optimistic view. I, you know, San Francisco reminds me a lot of Boston. So there's a lot of culture. You know, you and I like to eat, so there's no shortage of yeah, great we do restaurants. Like to eat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so okay, all right. For our next guest, and we had some breaking news on the show just a few minutes ago. We have Lisa's son, USA Today best-selling author of Ooh. Gravitas. Look at that beautiful cover. The eight strengths <laughs> that redefine confidence. Lisa is the founder and CEO of Gravitas, a company on a mission to catalyze confidence. Gravitas offers innovative size, inclusive apparel, styling solutions, and content designed to make over women from the inside out. Prior to founding uh, Gravitas, Lisa spent 11 years at McKenzie and Company, where she advised leading luxury fashion and beauty brands and retailers in the U.S., Asia, Europe, Latin America on strategic and operational issues. Lisa's first collection was featured in O, I know that's uh, Ray's favorite magazine and show, the Opera oh, Magazine, you. People, and Today Show in, in the same month. Uh, I mean, it was an amazing viral uh, reveal. Lisa and Greg have been featured on CNN, Forbes, Fast Company, New York Magazine, and much more. Often called, I love this, the Dress Whisperer. Lisa is also a highly sought after public speaker who likes to impart her award hard-won knowledge on Gravitas on how to best harness it to other women. You can follow Lisa, must have been an early adopter at Lisa l L-I-S-A-L-S-U-N. Uh, Welcome, Lisa, to uh, Disrupt TV.
2: I'm excited, now I get to add Disrupt TV to that list of places
0: <laughs> that, that you
2: know, I've featured, yourself. right? We'll like I. CNN I, I, good company. Disrupt <laughs> TV now, happy Friday. I love that.
0: Happy awesome. Friday, and and I think gravitas is an amazing title for a book. It's it's really more than confidence. It exudes class. It exudes, you know, a, a really sense of like sophistication, but it also sort of exudes a very very different type of approach. And I think Atwood and I looked at your, I uh, was looking at your. Uh, you know a performance review from a company you worked at and said they lacked gravitas. that word was used for me as well, uh, and I mm-hmm. totally understand it now today, but I wish someone would have guided me there and this societal view yeah. of confidence right it's it's interesting right you you say it's narrow, it's performative, it's unrealistic, uh, and you know I think you're doing a great job with this book to talk about what is this and how to help people understand what's happening and giving people agency. Talk about mm-hmm. talk about the background behind this and yeah, the inspiration sure. to actually come and say, mm-hmm. well, why is a book like this needed? And, mm-hmm. and what is the guide like going to mean for yeah. someone like you? You know, When you were 20, wouldn't you wish this had happened for you?
2: Yeah. Well, and, and I love that you start with the origin story, right? So my company is inspired by the fact that when I was 22 years old, my first boss in 2001 told me I didn't have any gravitas. I do think we've all received this feedback. There is not one of us that hasn't been told that we needed to be more confident, have more presence. And most of us are stumped. I, I think it gives us anxiety or it's ambiguous. You just don't know what to do with it. And over the last, I would say last 10 years of my 22 years of being in a professional setting, we realized that society has defined confidence as a behavior. So when someone says, be more confident, it's stand on a stage, speak up, be assertive, be in command. And if you look up the word, I I challenge everyone to go look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary. Confidence is an understanding and appreciation of your own abilities. There's nothing about swagger. There's nothing about bravado. This is why sometimes the quietest person in the room is often the one that you're saying that person has gravitas. And uh, so we went on a five year journey in writing this book around resetting and shifting the paradigm of how we as a society define it, how we talk about it for ourselves and how we can take action based on it.
4: Talk to us about that process. What was the five-year journey? How did you start? And when did you know you have enough content to have a best-selling book?
2: Sure, sure. Well, let's let's start with the, the you know, I, for the last decade, I've run a fashion company. So I dress thousands mm-hmm. of women a year. And I do think the most vulnerable point you can meet a woman is in the dressing room semi-naked. Let me just say that out loud, right? That is a place where <laughs> she'll tell you everything. Okay, yeah. um, and one of the biggest unlocks that we identified was, have any of you been around a five-year-old recently? You don't have to have a kid, but have you ever been around a five? Yep, yep. We are born fully self-confident, mm-hmm. Okay. Ask any five-year-old what they're the best at in the world and they'll tell you I'm the best at soccer. I'm the best at hugs. I'm the best at everything. They just love themselves. They don't know how to compare themselves. They don't know what envy looks like. They don't know how to benchmark their performance against anyone. And in our adolescence, there are six forces that start to hold us back. We start to become self-aware, self-aware. We start to doubt ourselves. And as adults, Confidence actually requires us to make a choice to see the best in ourselves and to channel a mindset that then drives behaviors. Mm -hmm. And the inspiration was, and gentlemen in the room, I'm about to give you insight to every woman you know, there is not a woman who doesn't walk into a dressing room hating herself. I'm going to lose 10 pounds. I hate my arms. I don't like my thighs. I just had a baby. You know, they tell me every, I just went through COVID and gained 42 pounds, which is my story. And They bring in all the six forces that hold us back from confidence. And before I start a fitting, I make her answer three questions. What are you proud of in the last six months? If your best friend or boss was standing here, what would they tell me about you? Tell me a funny story from your childhood. And every woman says, what are you doing? And I said, you set yourself up to fail. I'm a dress whisperer. I do get it right on the first time. That is why I earned that. I'm going to find something that fits you, not you fit into it. Don't blame yourself. Just blame the product. And she answers these questions and we start laughing and we start smiling. And she doesn't even know I'm dressing her while she's telling me a childhood memory. And she always comes out of the dressing room. She goes, this is a skinny mirror. I'm like, no, it's from Bed Bath & Beyond. Rest in peace, Bed Bath & Beyond. It's 1995. We can't afford the skinny mirrors. And she goes, what did you do? And I said, we had to set your mindset before we could do the work. And so when you ask me about the inspiration, this really started 10 years ago when I started my company, we started to learn that we could change people's mindsets. And every woman says, you know what, every time I put on this dress, I'm going to remember this feeling of being with you and talking about what I'm proud of. And five years ago, what we did was I said, well, and I, my publicist is going to hate me for saying this. I was like, nobody needs another book about confidence. There's so much ink that's been spilled. What am I going to say that's different? And so, I know, I'm so sorry, Betsy. I, you told me never to say that in the media, and I've said it. But I feel comfortable around these these guys, okay? And uh, so what, what I ended up doing was I said, I'm going to launch a quantitative and qualitative study on confidence. I'm going to mm-hmm. put my McKinsey back on. I convinced one of my old bosses from McKinsey to come out of retirement. She's in the acknowledgments. She ran McKinsey's Consumer Insights. And really... COVID was a great opportunity to use online focus groups to do quantitative research. What else were you going to do, but type a bunch of stories about yourself into right. an online format? And so we did a thousand person quantitative study and 32 wow. focus groups about confidence. And what we identified is there's not just one type of confidence. There's eight different types of confidence. Now and
0: before Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No,
2: sorry. Okay, yeah. No, no. I mean, yeah, I, I can keep going. Let me let you know. No. I was gonna
0: say before then. we do that, talk about superpowers, right? In order yes. to get to that confidence, yes. I think in, in the book it says you need to get to some level of superpowers or find your superpower. Uh, uh, talk yeah. a talk more about that and let's and we'll jump in so, deep so, on this so,
2: confidence.
4: No, and so please those are, those and are please the, think yeah. about please think about how you can become a suit whisperer because Ray and I could use your help.
0: Yes, actually we do need help. <laughs> I don't know why you're
2: well. not dressing us. I've well, been wearing I the same
0: thing for 13 years, so
2: you know i'm just gonna say this it's because you can only design for people you understand i understand women i'm not sure i understand men this is why i'm still single let's just put it out there so uh this this what i will say is and i love that you brought it up right so the eight types of confidence what we've identified is these eight different strengths areas and there are two or three that most of us are very so you you test we, we launched this website called myconfidencelanguage.com it's free anyone can take the quiz oh, cool. and you figure out which of these eight are your superpowers and that's essentially what you're the best at in the world. No one, you can't measure it. It's in your own head. It's what you believe you're the best at in the world. Because I found people had a really hard time as adults answering that question. When I ask you what you're best at, a five-year-old can answer that question. But in my <laughs> 40s, I was struggling with how to answer that question. And so these eight strengths, most of us have two or three. My mom, the original tiger mom, she, she took the <laughs> quiz. She's like, I'm all eight. And I'm like, yes, of course you are. So I click every button. By the way, 2% of our data set had all eight. Um, Older women tended to have it. And the whole idea is it's a confidence language. It starts to help you create your personal brand because until you see it in yourself, how are you going to get credit for it? How are you going to express it? Um, So that's to answer your question. A superpower is of these eight, which one of them are you best at?
4: When you ask Ray what he's good at, he still says hugging and soccer. So just want to let yeah, you, hugging,
2: know. Tennis, oh, soccer, you know. Hugging and soccer. He hasn't changed well his done. story
0: since
4: he was five. Uh, well
0: but, done. And he's
4: a good hugger. He is a good hugger. Um, <laughs> um, he picks you up off the ground. Um, okay, so so let's talk about the eight. You talk about uh, gravitas, eight strengths of gravitas uh, leading, performing, achieving, giving, yep. knowing, creating, believing, and self sustaining. Okay, so those are the eight. Leading, performing, achieving, giving, knowing, creating, believing, and
2: self-sustaining. Which is the hardest to develop? Well, actually, before we get to the hardest, can I, can I just add some dimension to what you just said? Please, please, uh, please. Leading and performing are the two that are most often written about, and they're very yeah. behavioral. There's an external okay. expression. Okay. So oftentimes when people tell you to be more confident, they're asking you to be in command or asking you to perform and be extroverted and charismatic. Less than 26% of people in our data set had those two qualities. And so when we looked at that, we realized, does that mean 80% of us aren't allowed to feel good about ourselves? Have we not valued other traits? And so if I walk you through those achieving and knowing, achieving, you get things done at a high level of execution. You have a winner's mindset. You don't accept failure. Knowing. You're the smartest person in the room. I always say, if you build IKEA furniture, there's no screws left and it's totally straight and upright. That's not <laughs> mine, by the way. The best way to understand this would be for achieving its Katniss Everdeen and the Hunger Games uh, and for knowing its hidden figures. Think about the amount of systemic bias those three women faced as the only black women in the room. And yet their route to self-belief, you would say they're pretty confident, not because they were leading and performing and in charge or charismatic. It's because they were the only people who could calculate getting Amanda's face. Then you do giving and believing. You support others, you care about others. Believing, this is Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is one of the most underestimated leaders because he didn't command and control, he wasn't speaking up. He believed, he was optimistic, he saw the best in others, he had positive intent. And by the third season, you thought he was the most powerful character of all, but he did not fit a classic prototype of confidence. The last two, uh, which I think is centered in Silicon Valley, Valley, I think these two are very much defining that culture, creating. You believe in things before you can see it. You can manifest vision. You believe in the power of ideas. You are totally iterative because you're totally comfortable around beating it up and making it better in the next round. Self-sustaining is one of the ones that fewest people have. Self-sustaining is I like myself. I don't need to impress you the seat at the table is mine. It's the one most needed to overcome criticism. So you're coated in Teflon. You don't take things personally. You don't spiral. And to ask for a raise because you're able to say, this is my market value and I'm willing to walk away. So in total, if you think about all eight, this is why my mom is pretty much the coolest person on the planet. She does have all eight. And and, and it's not like Pokemon. You don't need to collect them all. But... (laughs) What I do think is important is society has ignored some of them. So yes. my mom does say, and I say this in the book, when tsunami happened, men make speech, women clean up the beach. How come I never get credit for cleaning up the beach? So we, <laughs> we, we do undervalue things like achieving and knowing because we expect people to perform in leading and performing. By the way, if we were all leaders and performers, nothing would get done. So why don't we celebrate all eight Because then it gives everyone a route to believe in themselves, to know why they're here, how they're contributing, and to feel valuable on their own terms.
4: Al, if That's you're listening, I mean, our producer, please make sure Lisa's mom gets on our guest list. Yeah, um, we
2: want Lisa's She, on our she actually, list. Not we will she, put her on with Taiwanese
0: mom special going on. Could here. we
2: do that? <laughs> so the thing is, so my, I, I was born here, and my parents are from Gaosheng, Taiwan. And about ten years ago, my mom and dad decided to retire in their hometown in Gaosheng, mostly because, as my mother said, she has Lady Mayor and Lady President, therefore everything good, which is kind there of true. Go. I mean, it's actually amazing. And um, one of the things is I had a, a speaking event that was virtual and they asked if my mom would Zoom, if she would come on. And my mom, it was like the movie Sunset Boulevard, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. She got her hair and makeup done. She didn't make fashion. I I literally make clothes. I sent her an outfit. She's like, no, no, I wear Burberry because Burberry show up better on Zoom. They know I can afford Burberry. And she was the biggest hit. Someone said she needs a TikTok channel. She needs a YouTube channel. I, I dedicated the book to her. I actually wrote it in Chinese, the dedication, so that she would be able to read it and show everyone at the temple. She's like, you see? Book is about me. I'm like, book is a little <laughs> bit about you. you so, Ray, right. if, and my mama, the if they want to do whisperer. a special episode, I think they would have a lot to share with the world.
4: It is a beautiful book. Can you hold it up
2: for us? Yeah, uh, hold it up.
0: Hold it up. There oh, you look go. Look at that shine. Look, look, at, that look at the shine. Look yeah, at they,
2: the Gold Foil, my publisher is the best publisher in the world. They did approve the Gold Foil. I will say, and as I told you all this earlier, it's very book, sustainable. It's sustainable because you can take it off and put it over your guilty pleasure reading so once you finish my book and you're on a plane and you don't want to pe- you know people people to know what you're reading reuse the cover they're like oh yes. you're reading that women's empowerment book i heard about that how is it it's great take the, quiz. Uh, take the quiz
0: no a lot of people have taken the quiz and and you know one of the things that you've talked about is that language right the, the, the language of confidence right and having the right language in place actually helps you and and i would say that that's very true right uh you know being able to use the right language is it helping or is it hurting you right and and how do you correct yourself along the way uh you know having the taiwanese mom experience like we were taught to be very humble and, and very apologetic yeah. for everything and you know early in your career that's the worst thing you can do and especially like when you look like me i still look like a little kid it doesn't help <laughs> Right, so.
2: <laughs> oh no, and, and I do talk about that in the book of like, I, and, and we'd get into women of color and different biases that we face. One of the most important things, though, is you have to like yourself first. And I think we as a society, uh, it's called confidence culture. There's a great book about that where we've diminished it to a corporate slogan and in an Instagram post. And mm. it's very profound. It's like hustle like a blah, sp- sp- harsh, <laughs> I, you know, sparkle and shine today. And we underestimate okay, the immense amount it. of work. <laughs> well, no, and, and I don't believe in faking it till you make it. I don't. But I don't either. I'm things, just
1: saying, but yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. I, and 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 my mom, you know, I do love. So much about the tiger mom approach, but it does make you feel like you're never good enough, right? There's that standard keeps moving, and so I've had long conversations. Well, when Amy Chua's book come out came out about tiger moms, my mom's like, "You see, I was right. Someone wrote a book about me," and we had these <laughs> long conversations about being at McKinsey and Company and breaking all those habits because fundamentally, you know, I had to let go, frankly, of being that person that always had to measure up to a standard. And I think when you divorce yourself from external validation, and you focus more on validating yourself first, it changes the way you see other people too. How many times have you been on Instagram? And you're like, man, that person's always on vacation, or they're humble (laughs) bragging on LinkedIn about an award they won. And I always say, if you like yourself, if you have gravitas, you're happy for them. You don't feel envy. You don't feel comparison. Oh. You also know their, their life is just as hard as yours. And you're like, yes, good job. I'm, I'm rooting for you. Yep, yep. And, and that changes your own body chemistry. It changes your neuroscience around how you take on every day.
4: That's that's great advice. As an immigrant refugee, the best gift my parents gave me is no sense of an entitlement Because yep. I saw my parents work two jobs, seven days a week, for 20 plus years. I don't remember vacations. I mean, that's how hard they work. I don't really remember going anywhere in high school and college. And um, and the fact that they always had a smile, even though they were working 60, 70, 80 hours,
2: I just learned that the world doesn't owe you anything. So yeah. do good work. Well, Val, and don't I'm going to give you a, a prediction from the data set. Okay, I'm gonna make you a prediction from the data set. And by the way, I did too. I worked at my parents, you know, 495 at lunch, twelve ninety five all you can eat, Mongolian barbecue and Chinese buffet in Fontana, California. So I know what it looks You're like to be one. on the floor. I know where that is. Yeah. You know, Actually, on Foothill Boulevard? On oh, no, Sierra on Sierra Boulevard next on Sierra to the Sierra Boulevard. Boulevard. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Did really ma? Yep. Oh, wow, I've been there, someone uh, so told I'm me there, say-
0: long story, I'll explain why. <laughs> okay,
2: that's weird that you've been to my parents' Mongolian barbecue and Chinese buffet. It is the best one, or oh, they don't own it anymore, but um, I was going to say, Vala, one thing that's important is immigrants tend to test very highly on creating. Because the immigrant story is believing in something before you can see it, creating something from nothing, being incredibly resourceful. So we see a lot of immigrants' second-generation um, children score very highly, and it's also really hard for immigrant parents because with creating, you're like, "I'm going to be an entrepreneur." No, I want you to be a lawyer or a doctor. I do not want you to struggle. I trained you to be high on achieve. You know, it's, it's a very funny conversation. So I think when you take the quiz you start to understand your family better. My brother and I have opposite confidence languages, by the way. <laughs> and that explains so much.
0: So hey, this awesome. is wonderful. We could talk to you for hours. Maybe we should get you out to one of our keynotes uh, and at one of our events <laughs> really, really appreciate your time here. And the congratulations on the USA Today bestseller list. We're here with Lisa Sun, author of Gravitas, the eight strengths that redefine confidence. So follow our Twitter at Lisa L. Sun. Thank you, Lisa.
2: Thanks,
4: that was great. That was awesome. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I think I could use help with gravitas. That's for, for sure. Speaking of gravitas. This next guest <laughs> is so full of gravitas. It's just stunning. Henry King, innovation transformation leader at Salesforce, and best selling co author of a new book, boundless. A new mindset for unlimited business success. Somebody take a photo of this. <laughs> it's, on, it's on video <laughs> um, Take a photo. Uh, Henry is a uh, leader in innovation and transformation with 30 plus years of consulting and CIO experience, both U.S. and internationally. Henry's expertise includes innovation, strategy and management information, technology, leadership, full life cycle management, thought leadership, writing, and teaching. Henry's part-time faculty, at School of the Art Institute of Chicago, teaching graduate-level architecture and design courses. Henry's also part-time faculty at IIT Institute of Design, teaching graduate courses in innovation strategy. Henry was associate partner at Doblin Group, a renowned innovation consultancy firm. Henry also served as CIO at several companies, including Skidmore, Owings and Merrill, a world-renowned architecture firm. Prior to serving as CIO, Henry led IT strategy and development projects at Deloitte and Accenture. Henry is super smart, uh, very kind, and a giving person with a unique superpower of partnering with the right person to co-author a bestseller. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i added it to to his bio without asking Sorry, (laughs) that was just observation my bad (laughs) follow henry on twitter and at men of string m-a-n-o-f string s-t-r-i-n-g welcome henry best-selling by the way his first attempt first book he's a bestseller uh welcome henry to disrupt tv thank
1: you brother thank you ray (laughs) pleasure to be here
0: Hey, Henry. I, look, I have the pleasure of interviewing both of you at the same time, and I really appreciate this. Look, I, when I read the book and then I read it again, I realized there's something in this, right? And I'll start with a question here that, that might sound interesting because your description of flow for business is so important, right? People don't think about flows in business for humans. And there's a Chinese word for this called qi, right? And when you look at qi, right, that's the energy, that's the life force, right? Mm. When you block energy, right, you block your ability to do things, you block life, right? And what you're talking about here is really the flow in a business, right? And the vitality of how you do that. Uh, How do you build this sustainable culture to support this boundless mindset, which is really what you're talking about. And it's not just physical, it's not just mental, it's, Design, it's by design, right? You don't just do this by accident. A lot of people do, but if you're specific or you think through it, that's what I got out of this book. Uh, and, and I'll start with you, Henry. What do you think? And then go to Vala.
1: Yeah, I love that question, Ray. Uh, and I love that you started with Chi because it is, it is clear what we found you know, over, the, over the years is that the idea of flow, the idea of movement um, being absolutely essential to life, is um, it, it's, it's actually kind of been across all cultures. It's not just an Eastern culture. Uh, as back as the 5th century BC, I think it was Heraclitus, you know, talked about um, everything flows, everything changes. He was the one that talked about you can't step into the same river twice uh, because of that movement and um and we've seen also to have been in kind of western tradition it's been in eastern tradition a lot more and it's also in indigenous wisdoms as well so there is this strong sense of movement um being essential to life and as we're seeing now of course it's it's true in sciences Um, you know particle physicists are now saying there's no such thing as actual stuff there's only fields of energy right? So it's all about movement. I know that uh, one of Vala's tweets is about everything being about vibrations, right? The sense that um, life truly is energy, life truly is movement. And so I think what we're saying here is business should be no different. Business should be about enabling um, flows of energy, flows of resources, flows of nutrients of various different kind flows of data flows of people and so on and so forth in exactly the same way that an organism is or that life in general is
0: so right. i love that question no no and, yeah. and the and the overaccumulation of that flow and the overaccumulation of that is actually not very useful unless you put it to use right you also talk about that in in, in the book i mean Vala, go ahead you were saying something about uh, flows you were responding
4: yeah, I mean, you know, I think we recognize Henry and I and I talked about this uh, first in a ZDNet article in 2018. But Henry has been studying flaw optimization, negative impact of silos for decades. So I piggybacked on his decades of research and analysis. We ended up writing 20 some odd articles, ZDNet, which culminated in a book. But throughout, we recognize flaws around us. We just come up with creative ways of disrupting it. So I want to ask Henry, was it, did your research and this uh, deliberate focus on understanding the power of flow, did it start with understanding and uh, the negative impact of silos or was it the power of flows? How did you build your thesis again, going back many, many years ago?
1: Yes. um, So, when I first started, I started purely because i just finished reading Out of Control by Kevin Kelly. That was in, like, 94 or 95. <laughs> uh, and at that time, I thought, this is insanely cool book. This seems to be about everything that's cool in the world right now. Um, he talked about it being the marriage of the born and the maid. But he, he was talking back then about uh, Burning Man. And he was talking about bees and beehives. And he was talking about... Kind of collective intelligence and the game of life and there were all of these amazing things that i was just kind of really excited about and that i went on to kind of try to learn more about myself so when he said i'm going to write another book and it's going to be the the, the premise of the book was what does technology want
4: hmm.
1: and i thought that's a really really interesting question to ask because it's it, at that time like so the beginning of the 21st century not at all obvious that you could actually say that, that you could say technology wants something. And I would say it's still not really obvious. So the fact that he was willing to ask that question, I thought was fantastic. And I thought, I know that I'm not going to do it service, but if I'm going to have to wait for another 10 years until he gets this book written, I think I'd like to think about it in the meantime. And so I started (laughs) to think about it. And as I thought about it, I thought that there's something really about technology that's about kind of capturing stuff and capturing stuff in such a way that it's then easier to disseminate it's faster um and and you can replicate it and you can um control and you can manage it and then i sort of became very interested in this idea of what other resources do we actually control Mm -hmm. and manage um i started looking around and it was like wait we talk about granaries and silos being about m- maintaining grain we talk about missile silos which are about managing well warheads
0: Safety and, defense. and then we
1: talk about organizational silos and so for years I was just kind of looking at this question of is it true that we manage everything in the same way by storing it and I asked my friend this I said hey Michael I think I found something and I think it's really interesting. And I told him and he said, that does sound interesting. But the trouble is, if everyone does it, then it's about as interesting as saying, hey, Michael, I just found out that everyone breathes. (laughs) You know, it's true and it's kind of interesting, but you can't do anything with it. So it was at that point I was like, "Okay, I better check to see if there's an alternative. And so that's when I started thinking, okay, what would the opposite of a stock of resources in a silo, what would that look like? What could, what could the opposite of that actually be? And that's when I started to think about flows. And then, and, and I've continued thinking about that to this day, because not many people think about that, even though, to your point, Ray, it is fundamental to life. Most of us in business do not think about things in flow. We think about can we count them? Can we manage them? Can we accumulate them? Even Lisa said like in in the talk just like five minutes ago, she took about command and control. That's silo concepts, right? So uh, that's silo mindset. So the question is, what can we do that's different to that?
0: Well, resonance and emotion is very key right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're talking about that flow, that's the motion, and then how you actually appear, right? Which is the dimension is the resonance, right? And and how you actually create that vib- vibration, That that's that's the piece that people miss, right? Because am I fully here? Am I in the background, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Where does it fit in that process? It's a dimension that a lot of most portfolios don't account for mm-hmm. in their thinking. Uh, the other piece that's really interesting, because both of you are talking about this, is that notion of where you talk about autonomy. There's a balance between having these things all being pulled together and having human choice, right? And the question is gonna be asked like, for the next decade, right? even for the next century, as we start getting into the world of autonomous. Uh, and, and the question for you, what's the right path forward? How should business leaders think about this, Bala And Henry, how should business leaders think about building that into their design in terms of their strategy? Go ahead,
1: Henry. i told henry before this he's going to answer all the questions we featured we we,
4: we featured tesla in one of our first articles when we talked about the seven principles of, of flow optimization so and and we studied the tesla we studied all the building blocks of an autonomous vehicle we've had discussions about the autonomous enterprise and how the blueprint for the car will ultimately make it into how we work every day but go ahead go ahead go ahead henry talk talk about and in the autonomous chapter of the book we actually talk quite a bit about ai because we think that that's yeah. going to give us more autonomy but yeah. i'm going to stop talking now henry
1: no that was great um. <laughs> So it's a re- it's a really good question, and, and I think it does come back to this question of, do you really have the right mindset to begin with? Because so many of us are committed to this idea of accumulating control, right? even in a very benign way, if you think about the main job of a chief HR officer, right, they would say, my job is to attract and retain the best talent if you talk to a cmo or, or chief revenue officer they would probably say my job is to attract and retain the best customers if you talk to a cfo they would say my job is to accumulate and control you know the the, the cash in the in in the company if you were to talk about if you were to talk about cio or cto they would say my job is to make sure that i can um, aggregate and then protect all of the company's data right and so this idea of command and control, the idea of accumulate and protect, the idea of attract and retain or acquire and retain is just embedded into everything that we do in business. And it's something that we learn very, very early on as being the normal way of doing things. So before we can even really start to change things, we need to be able to really believe that that mindset could be different, that we could do things differently. So with HR, for instance, and I need to be careful here because my wife is an HR executive, right? <laughs> so I, I have to be really careful. But what, she, was, what she said for years, because we've talked about this, she said, I've come to the conclusion that what's really important is not to try to retain people at all costs. My job is to make sure that their experience of being here is as positive as it can possibly be. So when they leave, because typically speaking really good people, they will leave at some point or another. When they leave, they leave with the best possible um, relationship with us, and that they will encourage other people to join us. They will talk to people, think about their first jobs, and they will recommend that they come to us. You know, at Salesforce, I know this is not about Salesforce, but Salesforce loves boomerang people, right? And so the question is, how do you have the right kind of experience such that people might leave, but they might also come back and they might come back with new insights, you know, from new places that they've worked. So this is really at the core of what we're trying to do in this book. We're trying to say, here is this new way of thinking. Here's this new way of organizing. Here are these seven principles associated with that new way of organizing, and if you can develop that mindset, then automatically you will start to organize differently.
4: That's huge. great. I have a question for you, Henry. Um, describe your co-author in one word.
1: <laughs> Amazing. Of course, boundless.
4: Boundless. I was. Boundless. I there a you go. started boundless. <laughs> boundless. No. Okay. You say you didn't want to make it about Salesforce, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, is Salesforce a balanced company? And if so, why? Give us an example.
1: Uh, Well, in certain certain circumstances, uh, in certain characteristics, absolutely it is. I mean, we had, so we've already talked to the, you know, you were talking earlier in in this show, right, about Dreamforce. And when you look at Dreamforce, it's really a community event, right? It's a really extraordinary thing. It's not just the Salesforce people trying to flog stuff that it is Salesforce, it is our partners, it is our ISVs, it is our MVPs, it is our trailblazers. And you've already talked about what an amazing job the city did in order to prepare for Salesforce, to make it clean, to make it safe, to make it beautiful, such that everyone there had a great experience. And then Mark Benioff talked about what he was doing, what the firm is doing for the local um, uh, San Francisco and, and Oakland um, school districts, and what we're doing for the local hospitals, and so this whole thing, right? Uh, this idea of Dreamforce, the idea of the Ohana, is all about shared success, which, of course, is a you know a, a fundamental guiding principle out of the seven. So for me, you know, that's what I've been thinking about most recently is I've been watching Dreamforce, uh, I've been watching Salesforce Plus. And I've been kind of following it, and both of you guys, by the way, on you know X with uh, hashtag DF23, um, you know. And I've been watching all of this and just thinking, this is an ohana, this is an ecosystem, this is a very rich ecosystem that's almost um, unparalleled, I would say, in the business world. And so, from that perspective, I would say, absolutely, it's boundless.
0: That's great. I, I'm just I'm soaking this all in, and I'm realizing that. I mean, this, this, is a, this is not about technology, right? First people were like, oh, this is a book about technology. This could be something different. This is a lot more than technology. Um, and and it's, it's really about a brand new mindset. This is really the shift that's happening inside organizations. And most people don't have this mindset in the back of their minds. This is something that they, they haven't thought through. Um, you guys have worked with so many different companies. Um, who or what type of companies work best, right? To actually, be rethinking about this? Is it a boardroom discussion? Is it something you do at the beginning of creation of a startup? Is it when a brand new leader comes in and wants to transition? Like, where can people apply this right away?
4: So, so I'm gonna start it, but I want Henry to end it because, again, as you can tell, you know, the big brains uh, behind Boundless is clearly Henry King. Uh, I, you know, he's Batman, I'm, I'm, I'm the butler. I'm not even sure if I'm Robin. Uh, you know, I'm 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 Pennyworth. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So, okay, we had about 50 companies that are referenced in the book. Yeah, yeah. Amazing tech companies, market leaders, fastest growing companies. But Henry decided to lead the book with a chef. Yeah, Andres. So, so uh, so to answer your question, I want Henry to talk about why did we choose Chef Jose Andres to to lead a book where most people think two technologists, award-winning CIO teaching design principles at the University of Chicago, why would we lead with a chef? Uh, Henry, why did we lead with uh, Chef Jose?
2: We
1: led with him, I think because we all admire him extremely greatly, right? We admire his organization. We admire the work that they do. And I think because over the last, Three or four years in particular, he's really come to a great prominence mm. for this work that he's been doing. And it is it is obvious to many, many people the impact that he is having. And it's also obvious to many, many people that he's not doing it in the same way that everyone else is doing it. Now he went from a siloed,
4: centralized model to a decentralized, shared success, scale beyond belief, distribution, which he calls life. When we looked at Chef Jose's transformation of World Central Kitchen, he lived and executed all seven principles and did it in a beautiful way where most people don't realize there's about 70 people on his payroll, but he's able to deliver 1 million plus meals a day. There's no organization on earth that has reached the capacity of delivering food at that scale, and there's about 70 people on payroll. So talk about boundless achievement! Uh, uh, anyway, it, it was it was we didn't even have a debate uh, for five years. Henry and I would have dispirited discussions about everything about boundless and the book. But when it came to featuring World Central Kitchen, it was clear to us that this is the perfect role model. And by the way, if a company of that size can get to a million meals, there's no excuse for. you know fortune thousand companies with all the resources all the budgets and yet they still live in a siloed world with a siloed mentality so he
1: also talked about
0: starting small in your book i mean that's pretty crazy so yeah
1: and i think the other thing just to just so we so people don't think hey you know this is non-profit and therefore it doesn't apply chef jose also has a for-profit business of course he has a he has an, an an empire And one of his five principles for his um, for-profit organization is profit. He recognizes it's important to be able to make a profit. So this is not about not doing well, but it is about doing well and doing good. It is about being able to think about profit itself in a different way. So profit is something that gives you the opportunities to do more. Right. And that's yeah, that's, that's really man. kind of the interesting
0: thing about that. Well, we're here with Henry King, co-author of Boundless. And you can follow him on Twitter at Mana String. And uh, congratulations on you and Bala for your best selling book. You.
4: Thank you. Thank you, Henry. Do you for a second doubt when I tell you that every time I spend time with Henry King, he expands my mind. He I, is one of the smartest people I've I've ever met. Um yeah. and Amazing, just amazing.
0: The level of depth is great, and I can see where the thinking is, and it really comes from the experience of working with so many great people. So, very, very cool.
4: Absolutely, Ray. Please summarize uh, the last hour with uh, two best-selling authors <laughs> <laughs> and an individual who's shaped the commercial real estate landscape in San Francisco for two decades.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, we, we really want to take some time getting a pulse of what's happening around us. And when you looked at this episode, it's, you know, what's happening in hotspots, right? What's the impact of the future of work? And San Francisco is one of those places where we got a chance to kind of get a scene, what's happening. You know, is there a turnaround? Is there not a turnaround? You know, Chris really talks about the things or shifts that are happening and uh, where San Francisco's headed, right? So it looks like it's getting better. And of course, right, we do have to change the way we look at work, where we work, uh, and more importantly, what that means for downtown real estate. Uh, but just like when we're trying to re- ourselves and reinvent things that are happening. I mean, there's a great book that comes out and talks about p- empowerment and how to think about confidence and how to take back agency. And what Lisa sh- really shared with us was really that a lot of confidence comes from within, right? A lot of confidence really comes from your ability to self-build, self-develop-, self-develop yourself. And and I think you know those eight areas of strengths. Uh, I think was it leading, performing, giving, creating, knowing, achieving, believing, and I think last one's important: self-sustaining. That was the one that's very very important. those are important things because gravitas is a lot of it' it's, it's a mindset uh, and then when we talk about the ultimate of mindsets, this business mindset of boundless is really where we're talking about how we can actually shift the way we look at businesses right that portfolio of how you act the interactions, everything from talking about integration to autonomy to how you guys build teams I mean it's in the book, right and I think for the sophisticated boards and the sophisticated startup CEO who understands that have been there, right? They get a chance to look at this and say, Oh my God, that's how I operate. And they can verbalize a lot of the concepts that they have experienced. And for those just starting out, they can get a head start by jumping in and, and, and reading the book. So, so yeah, so that's pretty much the, uh, the episode and, uh, thanks for everybody for being here. And of course we have our next episode, which is episode number what? 337. Our next episode, by the way, we're getting
4: close to the 1100 interview milestone at Disrupt TV, we have next week Mike Hayes. He's the Chief Operating Officer at VMware. He led Navy SEAL Team B, so 2,000 men and women Navy SEAL. Small group, no, no yeah. one trained, no one Led by Mike Hayes for 20 years, so many assignments, uh, and he's a White House fellow, one of the most fascinating people, and also a best-selling author. So we'll start with Mike. Uh, Mark Logan, CEO of One Identity. And lastly, David Dotson, author of The Manager's Handbook. So uh, put your seatbelt on, get your popcorn. Next week episode is going to be pretty awesome. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you for recommending guests. and look forward to seeing you this time next week. Bye, everyone. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Uh!